Hello, my lovely people, and welcome to The Fletcher Files, a Murder, She Wrote podcast with your host, Monty. This week, we will be talking about Murder, She Spoke, season three, episode 22, first aired May 10th, 1987. And the IMDb summary reads, a temporary blackout at a recording studio leaves Jessica in the dark when the wealthy soon-to-be owner is stabbed to death. Now, we have one returner, then we'll get into the rest of the cast, but two things quickly. (laughs) One, one of my favorite episodes, okay? (laughs) But two, Stoney Carmichael in this episode is actually a real recording artist by the name of Charlie Daniels. Now, okay, (laughs) best known for his song, The Devil Went Down to Georgia. Okay, so I loved all of the music here (laughs) in this episode. If you have not seen this episode, watch this episode more than once. Like it was a good mystery. It was a good story. I like that. However, the music, A1. And so it's funny because they're showing the recording and clearly he's not singing in the studio, but that's his actual voice and him actually singing these songs. So that's always nice when they have an actual artist doing what they do best. But he also has is an actor as well. And um, just finally, he passed away in 2020. So not even that long ago at the age of 83. So, you know, just a little bit of trivia for you. Now, on to the returners. We have one, William Atherton, and we will recognize him as Larry Halloran from Murder in the Afternoon, the one who called his wife, played by Jessica Waters, RIP to her, and calls her my big lady, which was just the most ridiculous thing I had ever heard. Anyway, let's get into all of the characters. He plays Greg Dalton, by the way. So we have Greg Dalton, Nancy Dalton, Carl Anglin, Earl Tuckman, Stoney Carmichael, Lieutenant Faraday, Sally Ann Carmichael, Al Parker, Margaret Whitworth, and Randy Whitworth. Actually, one other thing. Okay. (laughs) So remember last week I said that there was a character here played by an actor who I love his more recent work and that he has an iconic character that is completely opposite to the one he plays here. That is G.W. Bailey, who plays Lieutenant Faraday. And we will recognize him from The Closer and Major Case, where he plays Detective Lou Provenza. I love The Closer. I love it. I love it. I love it. I didn't really watch Major Crimes. I really didn't like how they changed from Kira Sedgwick. Granted, her Southern accent was trash, but whatever, loved it still. And every single character on the main cast 
I just couldn't make the transition over to major crimes. I didn't necessarily like the sergeant or lieutenant. Yeah, I I forget which title she had, but she took over for Kira Sedgwick's character, right? And when they introduced her to us, she was a villain, not a real villain, like arrest her villain, but she was an, an antithesis to Kira's character. So I didn't like her and I never got over that. So mm, there's that. Anyway, so back to this actual episode. <laughs> so let's get started. So we start off in a recording studio. We find out later that the name of it is Red River Recording Studio. And we have Stoney Carmichael and his live band recording a song. Again, love the song. And we have Jessica in a separate recording studio recording an audiobook version of one of her novels. We find out later that it is the mystery of the mutilated minion. Now, it sounded like she said mini, but closed caption said minion. So um, take that with a grain of salt. Anyway, so we have Jessica in the studio with Nancy and Earl. Now, Earl is the sound producer, sound guy. I don't know what you call him, but he is on the sound board for Jessica's recording. And they're about to do a second take. And Nancy says, oh, I just want to wait a few minutes for Greg. He's at dinner with Randy. They should be done by now. So if we can give him a few minutes. And it's basically because Greg has never met Jessica, right? It doesn't seem like Jessica had a history with either Greg or Nancy until this project came up. So it's mystery books for the blind. And just a little look ahead, not in the story, but in the series, she eventually does record a book for the blind. She does. But this is like in season nine or 10, like in her New York seasons. But they, Greg has never met Jessica. So they kind of want to get that to happen, but they've already started recording. We then go to the first studio with Al Parker, who is the sound guy for Stoney Carmichael. And Stoney is asking for a playback and Al is like, oh, it's so great. It's so great. And Sony's like, listen, you would tell anybody that they did an amazing job just to get out of here. I got all night. Like, I want to get this right. Play it back. And he is not wrong at all. Like, sir, you're getting paid hourly or even better, a salary to be here so we can get this right. Okay. However many times I have to hear it back, we're going to do that. Not for nothing. He had, as the artist, he has the right to say that. So Al has now turned off the intercom. So Stoney cannot hear him. And he says, oh my God, save me from comeback cons. So clearly Stoney has been away for a while and he's making his comeback after prison. I'm guessing. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that because he still sounds great and 
there are a lot of artists who've done some time and have made a comeback. So like Al, pump your brakes because he is not being unreasonable. So we go back to Studio B where Jessica is and Greg has now arrived and he is the actual producer. It was his idea. He's the one who sold it to the recording studio or at least the idea to get the funding for it. And he is now meeting Jessica. Now we don't know that he is blind, right? He is wearing regular sunglasses inside, but he is in entertainment. So it could be a look, but in fact, it's not. He is blind. He was not walking with a cane because he is familiar with the recording studio and the layout. So he tries not to use his cane in familiar places, which we learn later, but it's not readily apparent to Jessica that the reason this is his passion project is because he is in fact blind. So Greg apologizes for the fact that they have to do this in the evening. Jessica says, well, I believe that scary stories should be told in the dark of the night, right? To which Greg says, it's always the dark of the night for me. And both of them laugh. Now, Jessica laughs to be polite (laughs) because awkward because you're blind, but you're making the joke. So I'm going to laugh because it's okay. Question mark. Nancy is not laughing and has this very upset, disturbed, annoyed look on her face. But Greg is blind and he can't see it. So Shout out to Cabot Cove Confidential for bringing out the fact that Greg is not able to see the look on Nancy's face and read her social cues to find out that she has a problem at all. So throughout this, if it was a seeing person, right, they would be able to pick up, well, not all people who do not have vision issues can pick up on social cues. But it's, they're married, so I would hope that he would be able to pick up on her social cues that there's a problem because she's not vocalizing it. But everybody who can see her sees that she has a problem, but he can't. So it's unfair to him and to her because the problem won't get resolved until she voices that she has an issue and what that issue is, which thankfully they do in this episode, so... There is some resolution to this issue that Greg does not know exists because he literally can't see it. So the next scene, we are in the hallway at the recording studio where Randy is speaking with his secretary who is wearing what? Like, okay, it is 1987. Going into the early 90s, She is wearing a denim jacket and skirt. She is, maybe it's 1980 skinny, but for me, it's 1990 skinny because I wasn't alive for most of the 80s, to be honest. So I wouldn't have known. But her hair is stiff as a board, okay? Light as a feather. (laughs) She has on hot pink high heel shoes and fishnet stockings, none of which is appropriate for a a job. But I guess since it's a recording studio and they have different artists that it's okay. 
But it doesn't matter because Randy is definitely into it. And she knows that. Not for nothing. This woman looks like she's 35. And she's trying too hard. <laughs> okay. If she was... Sally Ann, and we will meet her in a few. She is Stoney Carmichael's niece. Now, she was the blonde-haired young woman who was dancing to Stoney Carmichael's song in the initial scene, right? That's his niece. It's not creepy that she's hanging around. It's not that type of situation. But if she was wearing this denim outfit that the secretary had on, That would make more sense. Looking at what Sally Ann is wearing, that is age appropriate and environmental, not in the sense of like snow, rain, atmosphere, but the environment she's in, right? This, the music industry and stuff like that, it is appropriate at her age in this situation. Not for the secretary though. I'm like, ma'am, you could be Sally Ann's mother. Not even joking about this. You're too old to be wearing that. But anyway, I guess she got to get chose. So that's what she's deciding to do. Okay. (laughs) So the secretary, I don't even know if they gave her a name, honestly. They, she's giving Randy his messages. She says his wife called several times. So I'm like, oh, you're the worst type of person. He has a whole wife. Like, ma'am, take it all the way down. Okay, because she waited for him to come back. And he's like, oh, you didn't have to wait. Like, it's late. She's like, oh, no, it's okay." And she's trying to be all breathy and stuff like, ma'am, please. You're old enough to be Sally Ann's mother. Calm it down. (laughs) She also says that Stoney Carmichael called. He said, please get in contact with him. It's important. We'll find out soon why Stoney was calling him. And she also hands him a check. And it's for Mr. Anglin. Now, I thought she said from, but it is for Mr. Anglin and that he is going to be there at 830. To which Randy says, and he'll be out by 840 for good, hopefully. And then he turns around. He's like, oh, isn't it past your bedtime? You should go home. And she's like, okay. And like switches away. I'm like, ma'am, this is embarrassing for all of us at this point. (laughs) So Randy then goes into control room A for studio A where Stoney is recording and he's in the back with Al and they're having a conversation. Stoney then comes in and he hands over a cassette that has the cover art for his new album and he throws it on the table and he's like, you know, what's up with this basically? And Al says, well, Stoney, I told you, you know, pushing your album back that something like this could happen. And Stoney is pissed as he should be. And Randy's trying to calm down the situation. He's like, how did they get the artwork too? Like, what's going on? I'll look into this. And Stoney says, listen, okay, I have an uptown lawyer. If I can prove these are coming out of the studio, it will, uh, what was the word he used? Nullify my contract. Now, both Randy and Al perk up because this is now serious. Like that is the correct term 
and the correct set of circumstances that would result in a nullification of the contract. So now Randy has to fix this. He has to fix this. And so he's like, oh, no, no, listen, listen, listen. I know you've waited a long time to put out this album, but I'm your friend. If you want out of this contract, just say so. But Stoney is no fool. He says, yeah, and have to pay back all the expenses plus 50% of any future projects I have. And Randy's like, listen, nobody held a gun to your head when you signed the contract when I found you in that dive bar in Waco. Texas, for those who don't know. And Stoney is like, uh, someone got me mighty drunk. I probably have to pay for the alcohol too, right? And so he then storms out. And I know that Randy is sitting there thinking he may have a valid point, right? Because if he can prove that he was intoxicated at the time that he signed that contract, then the contract can be voided with no penalties to Stoney. Or if there is some other breach of that contract, it can be voided or nullified. So Randy really has to clean this up, okay? Because he he may seem like he's not super stressed, but the fact is the entirety of that studio is on the back of Stoney Carmichael and the success of this album. So once Stoney walks out, Randy turns to Al and he's like, honestly, tell me what's going on. And Al denies knowledge. He's like, listen, Randy, you know how loose security was before you beefed it up? You know, anyone could have came in here and stole the recording, which I'm like, uh, I don't know about that, but okay, fine. And so Randy says, Stoney is my ticket to the top floor. And he then looks at the monitor of Studio B, right, where Jessica is um, recording the mystery book for the blind. And Randy says no one would mistake her for a blues girl. And he then says, that's the last book for the bleeding blind coming out of this studio. Honestly, you're trash. Point blank period. Ugh, disgusting. So the next scene, we are in the studio and control room of Studio B, where Jessica is recording. So Randy comes in to the control room where the soundboard is. And he turns on the intercom and he thanks Jessica for what she's doing. He says it's such an important series. And then he turns off the intercom, meaning that he cannot hear what Jessica is saying and neither, and Jessica cannot hear what's going on in the control booth. So Jessica is like, oh, I agree. And she continues to address him. However, he has turned to Earl and is like, I need to talk to you and starts a conversation with him. So Nancy says, oh, just a note of insincerity. To which Jessica says, a note? That sounded like a whole symphony. <laughs> like It did. Like, at least listen to her response to your statement. You know, anyway. So Greg was like, listen, it's probably because this is the last mystery book for the blind that's coming out of the studio. And Nancy is like, 
Greg, why didn't you say that when you first arrived? And he's like, listen, Randy told me tonight at dinner. That's why he took me out to dinner. And Jessica's like, isn't there a way that we can take this to another studio? And Greg says, that'll be difficult. This series isn't really a money-making project. And Nancy then is like, I'm not going to let Randy get away with this. Greg is like, no, don't worry about it. And Nancy insists. She's like, no, this is not right. And Greg says, no, leave it alone. And so Nancy stops and Jessica is like, oh, this is awkward because y'all have, is this a husband and wife fight? Like, is this coworkers? I don't, I don't know. Is this management and subordinate? I don't, I don't know what's going on here, but I should not be involved in it. Uh, yikes. So Jessica says, well, this is probably not even a good time to speak with Mr. Whitworth. And we see inside the booth that he is yelling at Earl. Of course, we cannot hear any of this because it's soundproof and storms out, leaving Earl standing there looking stupid. Um, We will find out later what the nature of that argument was, but it was awkward both inside the control room and inside the studio. So the next scene, we are in Randy's office. He's walking into his office and he gets to the desk and then you hear a voice, which turns out to be his wife. She's been sitting in his office this for some period of time. And Randy is like, oh, how'd you get in here? Okay, because uh, how'd you get this number? <laughs> and so Margaret says, your secretary let me in on her way out. You know, I really should have my own key since I'm funding this little takeover. And there's some back and forth or whatever, which is really just like uncomfortable for everybody in this situation and outside this situation. And Randy says, you know what, why don't you make one of your special bubble baths? Which I'm like, what the heck does that mean? Does it mean it has Epsom salt in it? Sorry. This is definitely um, a May-December situation. We'll get into that in like literally 30 seconds. So Randy's like, I'll meet you at the tub at 10 p.m. And Margaret is like, why do I feel like you're rushing me off? And Randy says, listen, Carl is going to be here in 10 minutes. And, you know, I may not be able to wait for it, you know, to meet you at the tub if you stay. I'm like, gross. (laughs) And it's a whole lie. Like, it's a whole lie. Like, the look on his face is not one of, like, desire. It really isn't. It's a tinge of annoyance and pretending to be interested. Like, he's doing a terrible job of it. But anyway, so Margaret is like, good, because I'd hate to think that you only wanted me for my mind or one of those other M words like money. Girl, you know what this is. You know what this is. It is about your money. He is a decent looking guy, I guess. Okay. I'll be fair. For her, he is a young stud, okay? He has something going for him. He has this studio. He has a job. So he's not like a loaf, right? He's not going to leech all her money just blatantly. 
But, you know, he can hold conversations if you go someplace fancy or whatnot. All your other friends are going to be jealous because you have this much younger husband and he's after you for your money, not even your mind, like literally for your money. She is an attractive older woman. I'm not saying that she is ugly. I'm sure she could get somebody who is more attractive than him. If you're going to get a young man, girl, okay, get someone who look good, like who look like he worth the money that you spending on him. <laughs> Either he got to be rich already, okay, or you just are going to pay for him. Don't be shamed because like this, you could do better, ma'am. Margaret. You can do better. (laughs) Anyway, so she leaves. The next scene, we're back in Studio B with Jessica, Greg, and Nancy. Jessica goes back to recording. Greg uh, tells Nancy, oh, I'll be right back. We find out he was going to take a pill. We then see Studio A. Stoney is, I think they're doing a playback uh, with Al. So Al sees Greg leave recording studio B. Now I thought he saw Randy walking into his office on the monitor. That's what I thought. But we find out later that that is not what we see on the monitor. We see Greg leaving studio A. But anyway, um, Al picks up the phone. He calls Randy And he says, hey, you wanted to, you talked to me before about hearing a playback. And then the camera pans to outside or the scene changes to outside. We see a car arriving. It turns out it's Carl Anglin outside the studio. So he goes to get buzzed in. All of the lights turn off in and outside the studio. Carl is like, what the heck is going on here? He uses his regular key to access the studio building, like not the actual individual studios, the actual building. As soon as he walks in, he's like, there's some chatter. Like we, it's pitch black, but we hear chatter. Nancy's going to run out to see if she can get to the main power switch to turn on the lights. Um, Jessica's like, why don't you stay here? And I'm like, listen, I understand that Nancy is like, I know my way around here, but you have a client, right? Or an artist. I don't know what you would consider Jessica in this situation, but we'll call her an artist. You have an artist that you are assisting to make this audio book, right? Why would you leave her alone in the dark? That's, that's my thing. Now, spoiler, Nancy is not the murderer, okay? Nor does she, nor is she involved in the murder, okay? So she, she's not involved in this. But I'm like, I understand that they want to make her a suspect and that's why she left. But in reality, she should never have left Jessica alone in a dark studio where she was unfamiliar, you know, with it. Who knows how long the lights would have been out because maybe you guys would have had to evacuate the building. How is Jessica supposed to do this if you have now run off because you're familiar with the layout of this building, but she's not. Like, that's stupid. Like, why would you leave her? Except as a plot device, I get that. But yeah, anyway. So So then the lights just suddenly turn back on while Carl is standing maybe two feet away inside the door. 
We then hear Al on the phone with Randy. Now he gives the the okay sign to Stoney while he's, he has the receiver cradled on his shoulder. Then he starts talking to Randy and Randy is like, oh my God, I've been stabbed. Help, I'm hurt. So Al turns on the intercom. He says, there's something wrong with Randy to Stoney and the band. And then we hear this blood curdling scream. Turns out it's Sally Ann who has found Randy slumped over his desk with blood on his back, right? Yelling for help while struggling to ask for help, right? With the the phone in his hand, but the phone wasn't even up at his ear. It was like maybe 12 inches away from him in his hand, but like laying on the desk. So I'm like, how did Al hear this so clearly? Okay, that's not important because... No, that, that makes too much sense. Anyway, so everyone comes running in. They find Randy stabbed. He is still alive at this point, but he is hurt. And so Jessica's speaking with him. She's like, who did this? Did you see who did this? And he's like, I was stabbed in the back, in the dark. Um, it hurts, whatever. So not for nothing, there was not a lot of blood. So I'm going to guess that whatever the knife hit caused substantial internal bleeding. I don't understand why he could not speak in full sentences, however. I don't know. Like he wasn't having trouble breathing, which would make sense if they had like cut um, into his body and nicked his lung. That would make sense if he couldn't, get enough air to breathe why he couldn't speak in full sentences but there would be other indications of him not being able to breathe but yeah (laughs) like I guess he was in so much pain that he couldn't speak in full sentences I guess question mark anyway so the police come ambulance comes and Lieutenant Faraday comes speeding up to the scene so he ha- he sees Randy being taken out on a stretcher. He's like, is he going to make it? I don't remember what the EMT did. The EMT didn't say anything, but I don't know if he or she shook their head or whatnot. I unfortunately was not looking at the screen at that moment. But he, Lieutenant Faraday then starts speaking to Randy. He's like, what happened? Did you see who did this? So Randy is like, Al, Al on the phone. <laughs> and he, Lieutenant Faraday is like, okay, you were speaking to Al on the phone. It's like lights out. It's like, okay, so the lights went out. It's a pain in the back. <laughs> like, I'm sorry, this man is literally dying on this, this stretcher, which is terrible. But this is like so dramatic at the same time, not being dramatic. You know what I mean? I don't understand like anyway so Faraday then you know walks away as they're putting him into the ambulance because obviously the most important thing is if they can save his life to save his life not him answering questions about who did this Lieutenant Faraday wasn't gonna get any more out of him than he already did so 
he's lucky to have gotten that much. So everyone is gathered together to speak with Lieutenant Faraday, who's kind of giving an update and trying to get control of the situation, which he should, right? And after he dismissively speaks to Nancy, who has valid questions, okay? <laughs> He's like, don't worry your pretty little head about this. Like, we're we're gonna make sure you're protected at all times. I'm like, she could have been the murderer. So what are you even talking about? Why do you have to be so condescending? Like, just because she's a woman, this character is sexist, okay? Point blank, period. Okay, he's a misogynist. He is the worst kind of person. Now, there's a lot of worse types of people, but specifically in the fact that he, I can't even say traditional gender roles, like he's taken this to a whole different level. And you know why? It's because G.W. Bailey is an incredible actor, okay? Because I hated him. But... That's not who he actually is. He is playing a role because he's played other roles that are very different than this and much beloved. Anyway, so I despise this man. Uh, He does have a redemption arc to a point. He's redeemed enough by the end of this, but it's not as satisfying of a redemption because of how absolutely terrible he is just in his interactions with Jessica for the simple fact that she's a woman. That's it. That's all. So after he addresses the, speaks to Nancy as if she's a hysterical woman that he has to calm down and reassure, which she is not at all. Jessica comes up to him and she says, I'm sure you already figured this out, that there could have been someone already in Randy's office. And if they left, we wouldn't have known or noticed, right? It was very confusing when the lights were out, to which Lieutenant Faraday says, you know, it's still confusing now with the lights on, um, You know, like they say in those bus commercials, just sit back and let leave the driving to us. Trash. Okay. (laughs) Anyway, so the next scene, we're in Randy's office with Lieutenant Faraday and his sergeant, right? Or fellow detective. I, I don't know. I don't even know if they gave this guy a name, honestly. Sorry to that man. But... They're looking around the scene. Jessica comes in and before she can state her purpose, Lieutenant Faraday says, oh, my sergeant. Yeah, I'm sorry. So sergeant. Sergeant tells me you're a mystery writer. Jessica's like, yes. Uh, like before she, because <laughs> she was going to say why she was there so she can get him this information and go on about her life. Lieutenant Faraday says, oh, I think that's a good hobby for a woman. You know, cook up some supper, pop over to the typewriter for a few minutes. And Jessica says, yes, when I'm not beating the laundry against a rock in the river. And Lieutenant Faraday, although recognizing 
that she has spotted his misogyny, right? And his condescension and disrespect for her simply because she's a woman and downplaying her actual abilities. I'm like, did your sergeant not tell you the level of fame that this woman has? Because clearly you've never picked up a book or spoke with a fellow detective or sergeant from anywhere other than the person inside your head or you would know who Jessica Beatrice Fletcher is. But you don't. I don't know how great of a detective you are then, sir. Anyway, so Greg steps in. He's like, I I better step in because like this is getting offensive. Um, So he says, Jessica thought that something I heard in the hallway may be important. Well, if you're interested. To which Lieutenant Faraday says, well, sometimes ladies have real good hunches. Okay. So Greg says, I heard someone run past me and then I heard something drop. And Lieutenant Faraday asked, was that while the lights were out? To which Greg says, I don't know. And Lieutenant Faraday says, well, how come you don't know? And Greg says, he makes a statement, but basically he informs him that he is blind. To which Lieutenant Faraday says, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, I, you know, you get around so well, you don't use a cane. And Greg says, not if I can help it, especially when, you know, it's someplace I'm familiar with. And then he proceeds to walk out of the office without assistance, Right. So Jessica is looking around the office. She notices the bootleg tape, which she does not know is bootleg, but the bootleg tape on the desk, as well as a check made out to Carl Anglin. Now we saw Randy take that out of his pocket and put it on the desk when he was speaking with Margaret. Jessica then sees something to the side. It is a stain, right? And Lieutenant Faraday says, "Um, yes, I noticed that it's paint, to which Jessica says, it's nail polish and the bottle is right here. So she goes, she asks for his handkerchief to pick it up and he's like, okay, fine. So what's the difference? And she says, nail polish dries very quickly and this is still wet. So... Actually, I'm trying to remember, he may have at, before she said that, when she was closing the bottle using the handkerchief, this man is going to tell her, you could take that as a souvenir on your way home. It's rather late for a woman to be out by herself. I'm like, are you serious? Trash. Anyway, so that's when Jessica is like, "Um, excuse me, nail polish dries super quick. This is still wet and the bottle is here. So yeah, he's like, oh, so you're saying that a woman was here and stabbed Randy in the back? And she's like, that's not what I said, but that is a possibility, right? It doesn't, gender does not determine whether or not you're able to stab somebody in the back, okay? It's not like they were in a straight up fight and he has bruises and stuff like that. And it's like, what does the other person look like? Clearly this had to be a very strong woman or a man. 
But still, then you couldn't rule out a woman, just point blank, period. So anyway, his misogyny is showing. So (laughs) just trash. So then the phone rings and the lieutenant asks his sergeant if it's been dusted, meaning dusted for fingerprints. The sergeant nods his head. So Lieutenant Faraday picks up the phone and he is informed that Randy died on arrival at the hospital. He used DOA, which stands for dead on arrival, which I'm like, how far was the hospital? It, it had to be internal bleeding because there was not sufficient blood out and about for it to have been obvious that he had been fatally stabbed, right? But I'm guessing it was all internal and he bled out, technically bled out. He bled internally quickly enough that by the time he got to the hospital, he had already passed away. We then have someone notifying the lieutenant. I think it was the sergeant. I don't think it was another detective. I think it was the sergeant who says, we found the murder weapon. So they're moving the soda machine and behind it, they find a bloody knife. And Jessica says that must have been what Greg heard drop. Nancy sees it and she has an immediate look of recognition on her face that Jessica notices as well. Now, Nancy tries to pull it back, but it's too late because Jessica noticed it. Of course, Lieutenant Faraday did not because God forbid he actually considered that a woman could have done the murder, assisted in the murder, or be able to solve the murder. So mm, he was clearly not paying attention to either Jessica or to Nancy. So the next scene we are outside or in the Dalton's neighborhood, I should say. And Jessica and Greg are jogging. Okay, not for nothing. Why is William Atherton jogging like that? Like, I can't. <laughs> What is that even? Please, if you have this on Peacock or if you are watching it on Prime Video or even on uh, Hallmark Movies and Mysteries, when it comes on, okay, the next time you watch it, look at how Greg, the character, right, is running. Like, is this William running or is this his interpretation of how Greg would run? Because it's a whole mess. Okay, (laughs) what what is he even doing? Anyway, so, you know, Jessica is like, wow, you know, you've really not let this stop you. And Greg really hasn't. Um, And he's like, listen, you know, I'm familiar with this route in places that I'm, you know, familiar with, because we will find out soon that he was not born blind He became blind after a car accident or as a result of a car accident. So he had been in that studio for many years before that happened. He had been in that neighborhood and jogging that same track for many years. It is unclear to me, at least, how long he has been blind. We don't know how long ago the car accident was, But it seems like it's more on the recent side, like definitely within the last five years, even I don't even think it was that long ago. 
to be honest, but he has recovered emotionally well. Like he is presenting himself as emotionally recovered from, you know, being blinded in a car accident that we will find out he did not cause, you know, there's a different level of, uh, guilt that comes if it's a result of your own actions, but when it's a result of someone else's actions, which it is here, it becomes complicated. So they get into the house and Nancy is there cooking breakfast for them. And she says, what a way jogging, what a way to ruin a perfect morning. You know, how about some eggs before those arteries get too clear? And Jessica says, oh, that would be lovely. Greg then says, oh, I'll finish making them. And Nancy's like, oh, no, no, I already started. He's like, no, 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 it's fine. So he takes the bowl and the whisk to whisk the eggs. Um, And Nancy, again, has a look on her face that would indicate to someone who saw her, that being Jessica and obviously not Greg, that she is upset by this. Now, I'm going to say this. He came in from outside and he did not wash his hands. Okay, I am not even sorry about that. That is disgusting. Wash your hands before you're dealing with food. Okay, thank you. (laughs) Even before COVID was a thing, you come from outside, just jogging out in the air, touching the front door to leave or the back door to leave, you know, just... Touching the door to come in, whatever you touched on the way, like what? And you're just going to start cooking? No, no, that's a no from me and those in my house. Okay, so (laughs) at least wash your hands. That is gross. Anyway, the phone rings and Greg picks it up and it's Carl. And basically he is canceling the mystery books for the blind series. Now, not the rest of the series, like starting today. Like they're not even able to finish the book that Jessica is currently working on. It is done. Which I'm like, uh, could you at least let her finish the book? It's not like they were overbooked and they needed to move her so that they could get a paying artist in there. But... Maybe they, maybe they did need the space. I don't know. They didn't seem like they were doing super well, to be honest. So Jessica says, well, does Carl have the power to do that? And Greg says, well, he's done it. So I guess so. And Jessica's like, I'm not sure he does. I'm going to look into it. And she is on the case. Okay. (laughs) So the next scene, they're at Carl's house, which is palatial in his beautiful backyard, not even hating, it is beautiful, right? So it's Jessica, Nancy, Greg, and Carl. Carl is on the phone with Stoney trying to smooth things over because he had his issues with Randy and of course the bootlegging. And now it's all Carl's problem to deal with. And he's like, I'll, I'll handle it. Don't worry about it. So once he gets off the phone, Mind you, he's in a bathrobe. I'm like, what does he have under that bathrobe? I am concerned because that you are properly hosting these people except for that because that is inappropriate, sir. 
Anyway, <laughs> Jessica says, oh, my husband was a fan of Stoney Carmichael's, but I leaned closer to Eddie. I didn't catch the last name. And Carl's like, yeah, you know, this comeback album is going to be amazing. And Jessica's like, wait, it hasn't come out yet? He's like, no. She's like, I thought I saw a copy of it on Randy's desk. To which Carl says, yeah, that was a bootleg copy. And that was part of the reason that Stoney wanted out of his contract or out of his dealings with the studio, recording studio. And Greg says, listen, um, mystery books for the blind could be a moneymaker if it's promoted well. And Carl says, Randy only had you on as a favor. I don't owe you any favors. I have folks that are counting on me to make a profit. So Jessica says, oh, so you inherited Randy's shares of the studio. And Carl is like, I'm in the process of doing that now. And Jessica's like, wait, I'm confused. Uh, I saw a sizable check addressed to you attached to a contract signing over the studio to Randy. And Carl says, mm, you know what? A lot of things have changed since last night. And he's like looking at Jessica, but he's also like looking over at the others to see if they believe him. <laughs> like I didn't catch that at first because he's wearing sunglasses. But if you look at his eyes, they kind of dart around the table. So he's not necessarily as confident as he puts out. He's just hoping they believe it and drop it. So he doesn't actually have to um, prove that he owns the entire studio now. But honestly, if the check was not cashed and the contract was not yet signed, it means nothing. So yeah, it's interesting, but it means nothing. However, I could see if Carl had to sell to Randy, like did not want to sell to Randy, but had to for because he was having financial difficulties and now it's not an issue. He can in fact have the entire studio to himself and whatever profits come from that. I could understand that being a motive for getting rid of Randy before the contract went into effect because once it went into effect, it would go to Margaret because not only was she his wife and probably next of kin, right? But it was also her money that was used to purchase the studio. So she would have a claim on ownership of the studio. So yeah, Carl, okay, spoiler, it's not Carl who is the murderer. But if we took it that step further about why he was selling his share to Randy, then he would have made a much better suspect but they kind of already showed that it could not have been him directly for the simple fact that he was literally standing in the doorway when the lights came back on. So we saw him outside, the lights go off, he's still outside, he uses his key, walks in, he's yelling from like two feet within the door, and then the lights come on. So, and then he goes running when he hears the scream like everybody else. So it could not be him. They kind of set it up that it couldn't be him directly, but that doesn't mean someone couldn't have done it on his behalf, but they don't go into that being an option. So there's that. So the next scene, we're back at the Dalton's house and 
Lieutenant Faraday comes and Greg, Nancy, and Jessica are there. And Nancy's like, uh, excuse me, if you don't have a search warrant, I'm going to ask you to leave. And Lieutenant Faraday's like, actually, I do have a search warrant. Greg is like, listen, Nancy, calm the heck down. He just has questions or whatever. Let him do his job. Okay. Now this is because Greg knows in fact that he did not murder Randy. Now we find out later that perhaps Nancy believes that Greg murdered Randy and she's trying to protect him, but they had no conversation about this. Uh, so she wouldn't act this way, whatever. So, you know, I, I'm sure Jessica in her experience knows that just because Randy was murdered by someone and they believe that someone is Greg, that they will put their resources towards prosecuting Greg without then looking for an alternative. So she knows that just because he did not do it does not mean that he won't be arrested for it because then there wouldn't be a series, right? <laughs> exactly. So Nancy's like, I'm, I'm sorry I snapped at you. I'll go get some coffee. So she goes into the kitchen and Lieutenant Faraday starts to ask Greg questions and Jessica senses, her spidey senses go off. And she's like, I'm going to help Nancy in the kitchen. So she walks into the kitchen. Nancy's not there. She walks around the corner into the laundry room and Nancy is putting something in the dryer. And Jessica confronts her and she's like, Lieutenant Faraday isn't stupid. He'll look in the dryer too. And I'm like, girl, he's not. Okay. <laughs> now... Someone else might, okay? But he cannot in his mind think that a man would understand how to open a dryer. That is woman's work. He, does he even know how it functions? You know, <laughs> to use it? Of course he knows how to fix it, right? But he doesn't know how it works, like how to use it. So he would never look in the dryer or the washing machine or anything that is in the woman's area, you know? And the only reason he would look in the kitchen is because that's where people keep knives. So <laughs> Jessica, you're giving him way too much credit. But Nancy's like, oh, what do you mean? And so Jessica goes in and she pulls one of the knives out of the dryer. And she was like, uh, are the rest of the set in there? And Nancy says, yes, one of our knives was missing and Lieutenant. So that's why she wanted to hide them so that they couldn't figure out that it was from their home. But Jessica convinces Nancy that it's better to just be honest and, you know, let the lieutenant know because anyone could have stolen it at the barbecue because they had a barbecue for everyone associated with the studio at their home and anyone could have gotten access to said knife set. And so the lieutenant is looking at it and he is thinking that this is even more proof that it was Greg, right? And Jessica's like, Lieutenant, didn't you say that the prints were wiped off the murder weapon? Anyone could have taken the knife during the barbecue. And my thing is, right, 
if he, why would he use his own knife? Like, why would he do that? Why wouldn't he go out and purchase a knife in some other town or some other state? You know what I mean? Like, but I guess like if they put out a bulletin for anyone who sold a knife to a vision impaired person, I don't know. But if he went on a sunny day with Nancy and played it off like he was not blind, then he could have got away with it because he were, he was wearing regular sunglasses. And if it was like a sunny day that he went out and was able to man, um, maneuver without his cane or any indication that he was vision impaired, I think he could have got away with it. But who the heck uses their own knife outside the house? Now, it wasn't like self-defense and the situation broke off in the house. And so that he grabbed a knife and he stabbed somebody. That's not what happened. Why would he do that? And then, oh my goodness, think about this. How would he know that the knife was well hidden? He is vision impaired. That's stupid. Like, (laughs) he would have thrown it out a window. Like, how does he know that it's um, sufficiently hidden behind the soda machine? He should have put, he would have put it under the machine if he needed to get rid of it inside the studio. He is familiar with the studio. He could have put it behind one of the sound boards. He could have hidden it anywhere while it was dark. That, just stupid. Like, think this through, okay? He cannot see, right? Now, would he have been able to even sense if there was another person in the room? Possibly he could have heard them breathing or something like that, but he doesn't know. He wouldn't know when the lights came back on. You you know what I'm saying? Like, now that I'm thinking this through, (laughs) okay, let's take a second for this just real quick. So you're going to tell me that a person who is blind or vision impaired And they are going to commit a murder in the dark, right? Okay, so then other people can't see, whatever. That would make them the prime suspect because they are the one who most easily would be able to navigate in the dark in a familiar place, which we have already established, those two things. That Greg is vision impaired or blind And that he is very familiar and able to navigate the studio, the entire building without assistance. But this means that this person who cannot tell if it is light or dark, he would not know when the lights came back on. Because what happens if somebody went to the main breaker turned it off and turned it back on and the lights came on and he is with the knife hovering over Randy who then turns around like oh my god this man's trying to stab me like what the chances that he would be seen are immense and then he's going to believe that he could sufficiently hide the murder weapon and he didn't okay nobody had blood on them okay so let let's talk about that first okay <laughs> there is no talk of blood splatter but okay we're going to we're moving on so he he would be able to sufficiently hide the murder weapon 
when he could not ensure that a person without any impairments to their vision could see it because he would not know. Okay. This is stupid. Um, don't get me wrong. I love this episode and I love this concept and this mystery, but like when we look a little deeper, we see that it would not work in real life, which is great because you should not be murdering people in real life. So there's that. Or framing anyone, whether they have a disability or differently abled or not. So there's that too. So anyway... So the lieutenant is still convinced that it's Greg. He's like, well, he was standing next to the master switch. Jessica is like, we don't even know what caused the blackout, whether it was an actual power outage or if someone threw the master switch. And she, she turns to Nancy. She was like, isn't it true that you guys have had a number of issues? And Nancy says, yes, we've had electrical problems. Um, we've had to stop during recording sessions several times. And Jessica, no. And Lieutenant Verde says something about alibi, right? That maybe that Greg doesn't have a good one. And Jessica says, well, nobody can really have a good alibi during a blackout, which is true to a point. So there's that. Um, the Lieutenant then says, who better to navigate in the dark than a blind man, sir, sir? He would not know whether it was dark or light. So there's that, okay? <laughs> but we're not gonna go back through that. So Jessica's like, that doesn't, it still doesn't make sense. It still doesn't mean that he was the murderer. And the lieutenant's like, oh, do you want, maybe a motive would help? Do you want a motive? And this is when we find out that Randy was driving the car when it got into an accident that resulted in Greg going blind. So Jessica, of course, did not know this because she does not have a history with Nancy and Greg like she typically does with the people that she helps. She is not connected to any of these people other than for the purposes of recording her novel for the Mystery Books for the Blind series. So of course this looks bad. And Greg is like, yes, he does owe me a job, but not his life. He, he doesn't owe me his life. And I'm like, dude, people have murdered people for less, okay? <laughs> to be honest. So the next scene, we are at the Green Hills PD which is where they have taken Greg and placed him in custody. So Jessica, Greg, and Nancy are speaking. Jessica is asking Greg a lot of questions to see if they can narrow down who the person is. And finally, Nancy is just done. And she's like, he's not an eyewitness, Jessica. He's blind. And Greg's like, whoa, whoa, hey, hey, she's just trying to help. We're just trying to figure some stuff out. And Nancy's like, he's not a superhero. And at this point, it becomes apparent to Greg that there are some unresolved issues that he was not aware of because what? He could literally not see that Nancy had a problem. This was a hundred percent. Now, okay, I don't necessarily want to blame Nancy because this is clearly how she communicates her 
emotions. And because of Greg's now condition that she has not changed the way she communicates her feelings to him. And this is the first time that Greg has heard her say something in a tone that has allowed him to figure out that she is extremely frustrated. And perhaps she has been frustrated for a long time because this sounds real aggressive, okay? And there's no need to lash out at Jessica, who is literally an innocent, uninvolved bystander. So now they have to address this, right? Because now Greg has been put on notice for the first time. And the good thing about this is He's been put on notice, right, by, I don't want to, well, yeah, technically um, tone of voice is a social cue, that he's finally gotten a social cue that he can understand. And he's like, let's address this now. Let's not let this linger. Let's not ignore it. Let's deal with this now. Regardless of the fact that we're in an interview room because I am under arrest for murder, but this needs to be addressed now because I can't have my wife abandoned me while I'm trying to deal with not going to prison forever. So Greg says, I'm happy. I have a wonderful wife. I have a good life and everything was fine until I got here, you know, meaning literally under arrest for murder. And Nancy's like, why are you so damn happy? Why are you nice to Randy in front of me? Didn't you ever want to just bash his face in? I'm like, girl, Yes, but this is, well, I can't say this isn't your fight. Like this is your husband and he has been permanently disabled by this man who is like doing him a favor, but also like holding, like can just cut the strings at any moment and just the level of stress and power that he, this person who caused your husband, this permanent disability has And clearly they have not had a conversation, husband and wife, about dealing with their individual emotions because this is the love of her life and this has happened to him and she's seen how he had to come back from this suffering, right? But he's dealing with the actual like loss of his vision and both of them have the right to be upset and frustrated and deal with this, how they deal with it, but... Unfortunately, up until this point, they did not work on this together, which during some parts, some things you got to do on your own because, you know, clearly she can't help him in coming to terms with the fact that he can no longer see, but working through their shared emotions is something that is necessary. So Greg is just like, stop it, stop it. Of course I hate it. I hate it and I hate him, but hate isn't going to get me anywhere. Right, Jessica? And Jessica says, uh, uh, why am I in the middle of this again? <laughs> why am I here? Why does this always happen when I'm here? Okay. <laughs> she didn't say any of this, but this is exactly what she was thinking. She says, uh, yeah, hate can be very destructive. And Nancy says, but you can't hold it in. You can't push it down. You have to acknowledge it. To which Greg says, you think I killed Randy. 
that that's how, you know, I was just playing all nice and friendly and everything and that I was okay with everything. And then I just stabbed him in the back and murdered him. And then that's how I let out my emotions. He didn't say all of that, but that's what he meant. Okay. (laughs) He just said, you think I killed Randy? And Nancy doesn't answer with a yes or no. She says, I don't know you. You've shut me out. You've cut me off. You don't ask me for help. I'm just your chauffeur. And at this point, she starts to walk away, like walk past him. I don't know if she was heading towards the door or to sit down. I don't know. But he then reaches out for her, pulls her near. And it seems like there is probably further conversation had off screen, you know, but it's finally out on the table and they now have the ability to address it in some part. So the next scene, we're outside with Jessica and Nancy and Jessica's asking, like, you said there were prior blackouts. Were they the same as what we experienced, like total darkness? And Nancy says, yes, but you don't, so you don't think this was a coincidence, And Jessica says, no, if I were planning to frame a blind man, I would need to rehearse. And so Jessica's like, you go ahead home or to the studio, wherever the heck she was going. I have to clear up some things with Lieutenant Faraday. So Jessica goes back into the precinct to speak with Lieutenant Faraday, who is like cleaning his hunting rifle and trying out a new night scope. I'm like, that is inappropriate. Like she's literally standing there. He's looking through the night scope and like, you know, holding the gun up and everything. I'm like, sir, was that okay back in the day? Do they do that now? I don't know. But this is unprofessional because she is literally a citizen. You know, (laughs) she's like, did I interrupt you or something? Because this is inappropriate. So he tells her that the blood on the knife is Randy's. And so he makes a call to unseal the studio. And Jessica's like a real murderer, the the real murderer could go in and cover their tracks. Like, you know, what are you doing? Like, this isn't solved. It wasn't Greg. You're not looking at any other possible murderers. And the lieutenant was like, please don't act like. And before he can say it, Jessica's like, please. Do not destroy what respect I have left for you. And you know, she wanted to say little, what little respect I have left for you (laughs) by saying, calling me an irrational woman. And so he says, an irrational person. And then like kind of shows her to the door and takes, okay, side note, he pours both of them coffee into two mugs, which I'm like, uh, that's not sanitary for you to just be giving regular people a mug, but okay, fine. But he literally pours like two sips worth of coffee in there. I'm like, you didn't even fill up the cup. You literally put like two sips worth. If it was a quarter of a cup of coffee, like a good two ounces, that was a lot. Okay. I was like, what was the point? What was the, even the point? And he was surprised that she just wanted black coffee, but I'm like, what sugar and milk are you putting in two ounces of coffee? Nothing. (laughs) Anyway, so Jessica says, no, you're being irrational by not looking at 
all of the suspects and fully investigating this case. And she proceeds to hand back the mug and walk off. So there's a scene with Jessica, Stoney, Al, and Sally Ann. We don't need to get into it. It was not important because I didn't write any notes. So there's that. (laughs) Okay. So Jessica goes in to speak with Al And she's asking him questions like, while you were on the phone with Randy, did you hear anything? Any noise in the background? Um, Keys jangling, anything. Because we know keys jangling helped her solve a murder back in Tough Guys Don't Die the first time we met Harry McGraw. And Alice like, no, I didn't hear anything. So then Jessica goes to speak with Earl And he's like, oh my goodness, there's shorts all over the place, meaning electrical shorts. And he's like basically banging on (laughs) the control panel. And Jessica's like, oh, wow, very scientific. So (laughs) I like, listen, sometimes if you hit an electronic device, it'll work right. Okay. (laughs) That is an actual factual remedy for electrical shorts and issues. So I am not licensed to give you that advice. So if you do that and it breaks, it is not my fault. That was your choice to do that. But I will say it has worked for me. Perhaps it has worked for you. Okay. (laughs) So Jessica asked, like, can you tell the difference as to whether a blackout is caused by the master switch or a power outage. And Earl says they look the same, but I can tell you that it wasn't the master switch on previous occasions because I checked it myself and the lights just came back on and it always happened in the evening. And Jessica says during mystery books for the blind and Earl says, yes, And during Stoney Carmichael's sessions too. So Stoney Carmichael was recording at the same time that Jessica was recording. Also, I believe what he meant when he said that it wasn't the master switch. He checked himself. I believe he went to the master switch and it was on in the on position. So it had not tripped, meaning shut off, but was in fact still on. And so he could not then turn the lights back on because the master switch was already engaged. So that's what he meant about the master switch not being the issue on those previous occasions. So Jessica asked Earl, what was he arguing with Randy about? And Earl says, well, he accused me of being the person bootlegging tapes. And so he then says, you know what? I've never seen anyone nearly as mad as Stoney. He was just so upset about the bootlegging. If he wasn't in the studio, I would have thought that he was the one who did it. Not for nothing. I feel that Stoney would have just choked him to death. Like, honestly, I don't think he would have stabbed him in the back or something like that. He doesn't seem like the type of person who would do that. If you know what I mean, like, I feel like he would be more direct and he would have just um, confronted Randy and choked him out. Like, I'll go back to prison. I don't even care. Like, 
Let me go ahead and finish this album. <laughs> Maybe that's what he would have done. Like after he finished the album, just went ahead and took Randy out. Literally. Um, so <laughs> yeah, stabbing someone in the back really doesn't seem to be Stoney's flavor. So Jessica then bumps into Sally Ann and Jessica's like, well, you were in the ladies room during the blackout. And Sally Ann says, yeah, um, you know, trust me, that's not where you want to be during a blackout. And Jessica says, well, you know, at least you were able to get out of there and navigate in the dark. And she's like, what do you mean? And Jessica says, I think she says, what do you mean? I didn't leave until the lights came back on. And Jessica says, well, weren't you the first one to find Randy? And (laughs) Sally Ann, who, although she plays a little on the dumb side, she quickly picked up what Jessica was putting down. She was like, "Uh, excuse me, I didn't even know him. Why would I want to kill him? Okay, thanks for the soda. And (laughs) she didn't even thank her for the soda and just walks off, grabs the sodas and walks off. So the next scene, we have Margaret and Carl walking down the hallway and Margaret wants to, in fact, go through with the sale of Carl's shares to her instead of Randy. She was like, the same deal you have with Randy, I'm willing to, you know, go forward with that. The money was mine before and the money is mine now. And Carl is like, well, I don't know. You know, circumstances have changed. And as they come around the corner, Jessica, who was in Randy's office trying to envision the night of the crime, she then hurries up and sits on a sofa outside the office right as Margaret and Carl turn the corner. And she stands up and Carl's like, what are you doing here? Um, And Jessica's like, oh, I was waiting for you. And Carl's like, well, that could have been a long time. Um, I'll get your tape from Earl. Uh, And then he's like, (laughs) "Uh, well, you know the widow. (laughs) What? So Margaret's like, "Uh, I guess that was Carl's way of introducing us. So Jessica gives her condolences And Margaret puts on a show for what reason I do not even know. She's like, you know, it's just so terrible saying goodbye to your husband in the morning and then finding out later that those are the last words that you'll ever say to him. And she has her handkerchief and she, you know, dabs the corner of her eyes where there's no tears to be found. And Jessica's like, oh my goodness, that must be, that must have been so terrible. That's a nice dress. Is that crepe de chine? She's like, yes, it is. She's like, she goes to shake her hand and she looks at her nails and she's like, oh, that's a beautiful pale pink. Is that a Monet Mauve? And Margaret's like, oh, you really know your nail polishes. And Jessica was like, oh, well, it's interesting because there was a bottle spilled on the floor over here and Lieutenant Faraday found it. Jessica, you really do be giving him way too much credit, but okay. And so Margaret is like, well, there's nothing clandestine about me visiting my husband at his office. And Jessica was like, there's not. But why did you try so hard to make me believe that you had not seen him? 
after the morning? Question mark. Suspicion, suspicion, suspicion. (laughs) So the next scene, Jessica is outside of the recording studio getting into a taxi. And then we see she holds off on leaving because she feels drama a brewing and it's about to go down. I am Jessica and Jessica is me. I'm like, oh yeah, let me find the address in my purse. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What's going on over here? Okay. Now the taxi driver, I know he's trying to see this drama too. So don't act like you was ready to go because the clock is already ticking. She's going to pay for this sit down time. So it's fine. So Carl is walking up to the studio and Stoney comes busting out the door with Sally close on his feet, his heels. And he proceeds to threaten Carl. And it's regarding Carl, quote unquote, helping Sally Ann with her career. She tried to get Randy to do so. And now since Randy's dead, she's trying to get Carl to do so. And, uh, <laughs> Stoney knows that they're not actually trying to help with her singing career because there is no singing career. He gets to the point, he like throws down his hat and he says she has a tin ear and a voice like a screech owl, meaning that she's only good for one thing. And I'm like, what? Now that one thing could be uh, several things, But none of them are things that he wants his niece to be involved with. Okay, good on you, uncle. (laughs) And so Sally Ann is like, Carl, you're not going to let him speak to me like that, are you? And Carl is hemming and hawing. He is hemming and hawing, okay? And Stoney's like, yeah, he gonna let me talk to you like that? Because without me, this place is one big nothing. And so (laughs) Carl is still not saying nothing, just making sounds out of his mouth. (laughs) He know when not to say anything. And this is that time because Stoney is 100% correct. And so he's like, let's go back inside. And Sally trying to show out, right? And he's like, if you keep acting up, I'm going to send you back to your mama in Chattanooga. Now get over here. <laughs> listen, listen. Okay, he ain't have to manhandle her like that though. But like, he trying to save her from the streets. Okay, he is trying to protect her from being exposed, used, and then thrown away by this industry It don't matter how long he was in prison. It does not matter. He knows what it's about. And he's only doing a favor for his sister, bringing Sally Ann out here so she can see the business and everything. But he knows that he's never going to allow her to get into the industry because she's not talented. He's just trying to protect her because he knows that if he did not bring her out, then she would have connected with some shady person who was going to get her into some stuff that she did not expect to get into and did not know how to get out of. So he's probably like, it's better for her to go along on the road with me and with her hopes and dreams and whatever, and, you know, see what's what and feel a part of it rather than her trying to find her own way and getting, you know, 
used and abused and thrown away when he could protect her. So he is trying to be, and he is being a good uncle and she just don't know any better. So yeah, the fact that he had to like grab her arm and drag her back in there, I'm like, okay, but yeah, cause she, she, she wasn't listening. She, she would have really been messed up if it wasn't for her uncle. And I was like, you could tell she was hard headed cause he really had to drag her up in there. Like you stupid. Like he ain't, he does not have the best for you. He does not have the best for you. You are delusional and I have to protect you. All right. I got to protect you, <laughs> but I'll send you back to your mama. Cause you ain't gonna have me out in these streets going back to prison over you not knowing what you are supposed to do. And that I'm trying to protect you and you about to get in some trouble. Now I gotta, now I gotta beat this man up. And now I got to go back to prison for you? No, I'm going to send you back to your mama if you don't act right. <laughs> I do not blame him one bit, okay? <laughs> so the next scene, we are back at the Dalton's house with Greg, Nancy, and Jessica. And they are listening to Jessica's tape. So what she has already recorded for the book. And Nancy's like, oh my goodness, like, Greg, you just, you know, you just got out on bail. Like, have a second, like, sit down, take a shower, wash your hands, you know? <laughs> Something, lay down. I, I don't know. But <laughs> he's like, no, I, I, I just want to listen to it and see if we can sell um, this project to another studio. And so Jessica is like, I'm just very confused, right? So after the lights went out, which the timing of which Greg has to trust those who could see about what the time was when the lights went out because he has no idea because he can't see. But she says, the person who ran past you, like, did, did you hear anything? Well, no, no, I take that back. She says, the person was running past you, right? And Greg says, yes. And she's like, how can someone run in the dark? You know? And so in the midst of this, Greg is starting to prepare coffee and then he hands it over to Nancy and he says, you make better coffee than me even when I could see. And so there's an exchange where now Nancy's facial expression is one of love and care, right? So clearly they have worked out their communication issue and Greg has figured out where he needs to ask for help to ensure that Nancy feels a part of his world and where Nancy has to let him do, you know, what he needs to do to, for himself to feel secure in his new life, right? As a person with vision impairment. So there's a call from Lieutenant Faraday and they're listening to the tape. So he hears as the phone's being passed over, he hears the tape and he asks Jessica, like, what's this about the victim wearing makeup? And Jessica says, oh, well, that's not me. Well, okay, so it is me, but it's a tape. It's a tape of me talking. And she has an epiphany. And the lieutenant says, listen, I wish you hadn't have a, hadn't accused Margaret Whitmore, I'm sorry, Whitworth, 
of murder because she's been yabbering my head off all day. And Jessica says, oh, don't worry about her. It wasn't her. I know who killed him and I know how, but I don't know how to prove it. And Greg says, who, who did it? Because he's like, this person framed me and tried to ruin my life. So please tell me immediately who this person is. But I'm like, Greg, you're probably actually at the point where you would do harm to this person. So maybe we shouldn't tell you just yet. So the next scene, we are at the studio and there is a van with Larry and the Lashers. Okay. (laughs) Which is a band, clearly. They're leaving. So we're then inside the studio and Al is left alone. Like Earl was in there with him doing the recording for Larry and the Lashers. And they're cleaning up. Earl then heads home because it's late. Al is like, I'll I'll clean the rest of this up. You go ahead on. And suddenly after Earl leaves, like maybe 30 seconds after he walks out the door, the lights go out. We then hear the door creak open. And Al is like, who's there? And Greg says, it's me. Why would you frame me? You know, a blind man and you're doing this in the dark, however he put it. And Alice like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. And Greg says, you did a good job too. Maybe too good of a job. It is true. I can maneuver in the dark and I'm getting closer and closer. And Alice like, you're crazy. Then suddenly the lights come on and standing in front of him are Jessica and Greg and directly to his left are the Lieutenant, Lieutenant Faraday And a sergeant, they're standing in front of the door. And Jessica is like, um, you know, you switched on the lights like you did the night that you killed Randy. And Al is like, I don't know what you're talking about. The lights just came on. And Lieutenant Faraday then reaches under the soundboard. He clicks the switch off and then on. So the lights of the entire building turn off. There is complete silence right? Not even the humming of, you know, instruments or anything, complete silence. And then when the switch is turned back on, all of the lights and everything turned back on. And Al says, well, just because I have a master switch here doesn't mean that I'm the murderer. And he says, how could I see in the dark? To which the lieutenant says, with this, he then picks up a motorcycle helmet And he says, we think. (laughs) He's like, just in case Jessica is wrong, I want to be able to distance myself from this. And Jessica says, well, it has an infrared visor. And Al is like, well, I was on the phone with Randy at the time that he was murdered. And Jessica says, no, that was a tape recording, which allowed you to have an alibi. And it also locked Randy in one place while he was on the phone. And Jessica said, further says that you knew that Greg took his pill at 8 p.m. every night. So that's when you would rehearse maneuvering in the dark. And on the night of the murder, you saw Greg leave the studio to take his pill. And it was easy for you to maneuver with the helmet. It was close at hand so you could reach it in the dark, put it on and go 
into Randy's office and stab him in the back. And you had the advantage that he didn't die immediately. And Lieutenant Faraday then said, he alibied you on his deathbed. And so there's some back and forth, I, I think, that I didn't get. And Al is like, my lawyer is going to make sushi out of you. You got nothing on me. You can't prove it. And they then take him out. So the sergeant then takes him out. He's under arrest. And as the lieutenant is getting ready to walk out the door as well, he said, don't feel bad, ma'am. I'll make sure I get a confession out of him. And Jessica says, well, you did search him the night of the murder, right? And Lieutenant says, well, of course we did. And Jessica says, well, you didn't find the tape. So it must be somewhere. And she points to all of the tapes that are there from previous recordings. So the next scene, we're at the Dalton's house out front and Jessica is getting ready to leave. And Greg says, how can we ever thank you? And Jessica says, get mystery books set up at another studio and we'll finish recording the mystery of the mutilated mini or minion. Like I said, the closed caption said minion, but to me, it sounded like mini, whichever. And so then we see a car pull up and she's like, oh, there's my ride. And Nancy says, oh, it's Lieutenant Faraday. And Greg says, does he look happy or not? (laughs) And Jessica says, oh, he looks very pleased with himself. So he approaches and he tells them that Al confessed. He was the bootlegger. And Jessica asks, well, did you find the tape? And the lieutenant says, "Uh, yeah, 10 hours later. If I never hear another guitar, it won't be too soon. So (laughs) they then get into the car or he, he takes Jessica's luggage. He takes it to the car. He opens the door for her and he says, Jessica or Mrs. Fletcher, I forget how he addresses her. He says, you know what? After this case, I have to say that I'll never again underestimate. And Jessica's looking at him like, now what he about to say? Is he about to mess up everything that just happened? (laughs) Okay. And he said, the intuition of a woman. And Jessica's like, I'll take it. Okay. <laughs> she, she laughs, she sighs and laughs, but it's like, all right, well, all right. We, we've come this far. I'll take that much. Okay. And he did not say it in a condescending fashion. So we, we will take it. It is neutral enough and it shows some level of growth. But I think we first saw his growth when he was willing to go along with Jessica's idea on how to expose Al as the murderer. So, but he at least listened enough to get together and work this out in order to solve this murder. So I'll give him that and that's it. Okay. <laughs> so that's that on that, a great episode Like I said, I loved it. The music made it that much better of an episode. Um, I I ranted where I ranted, but at the end of the day, it's a great episode. I watch it continuously. I definitely have it on my DVR. It's a good episode. And it is the final episode of season three. So next week, we will be doing a season recap of season three. 
I may do season four, episode one next week as well. Do not quote me on that. We will see what this week brings, okay? (laughs) But anyway, you guys enjoy the Super Bowl today if you're listening to this when it first comes out. I do not have a dog in that fight. Uh, I hope to win some money, but I don't really care who wins as long as their scores are the ones that I picked. So (laughs) let's win some money out there. Um, And the halftime show. Those are the only two things that I am um, concerned about. I will watch the commercials on YouTube the day after. So there's that. (laughs) Anyway, until next week, you can find me on Instagram at the Fletcher Files pod on Instagram on Facebook Meta at the Fletcher Files Pod Facebook page. And of course, you can find me on Patreon, link in the description box. But until next week, Sunday at 5 p.m., you guys promise me you will have an amazing week and I promise to do the same. Until then, bye. <laughs>